So there's something to always say about dangling on the edge of things. So um, a part of this practice uh, is our capacity to, uh, in essence, uh, it's not so much about the information or what's going on here, but our capacity to kind of stay connected, connected to our bodies, to sound, uh, to uh, either sight or any uh, door, uh, and, and make this part of your practice. So staying there where you are, this is from Charles Osborne, and I would like to start with that. Whatever you say, leave the roots on. Let them dangle and the dirt to make clear where they come from. Let them dangle and the dirt to make clear where they come from. So before I read my poem I wrote to you and me and all of us, is uh, I'd like to just go back to um, this spiral we've been working with. And uh, Gil's last uh, statement was uh, the four noble truths. How when there's that knowledge of liberation and we understand uh, that in essence that um, uh, even in these moments of just recognizing that uh, we're not in the way, things uh, just are as they are. And there is some sense there of space or freedom or whatever. There has to be, in essence, kind of a knowledge of how, uh, uh, how it happens. And so with that, I would like to um, read to you my poem, and then I'm going to leap off and see where I go. It's called Spring Equinox. I guess that's today. And it's called A Lesson. Before freedom speaks, you must know. Know you lost something. Someone, somewhere, somehow. When a small shiver, vibration, some tingling that causes your fingertips to stretch out, out, beyond time, some place where that budding awareness leaves the foul taste and smell behind. So a lucid calmness, like stepping through the clouds, being held in all directions, your own strong arms, embracing that seer, that seeker, the one who promised freedom, your own body covered in rags, a patchwork of so many dreams caught in this destiny of becoming. Today, you looked under the covers, far beneath the alluring senses, Somewhere where a warm heart and fierce eyes, feet free to walk among the high mountains again, unmoved by the chill of last year's dying. Needing only a moment of full attention the whole world disappears, all the grasping to belong gone, all the constructions useless. This body, mind, interconditionality known, wisdom well earned sees the nature the natural state of things. Oops, the heart breaks open. Wisdom well earned sees the natural state of things.
Oops, the heart breaks open. So I want to tell one of the things why I read that first piece from Charles Osborne and just kind of stepping out here was um, Friday, uh, I uh, drove to San Francisco to the Cancer Center where I have been a frequent uh, visitor, you know. And uh, so it was a big deal to go. It's a real big deal to talk about it in some ways, too, which I haven't too much. But, you know, it's really, this is what we are, you know, what's true. You know, I realize that part of it is that um, that kind of adventuresome spirit that, you know, first took me, uh, you know, in the 60s uh, to hitchhike across Europe and, uh, you know, end up, uh, I think first I was stopped in Thessalonica, Greece as a spy, you know, and then later to be, uh, you know, put in jail in Turkey uh, as part of the, just the craziness of the times and the kind of the cultural exchange uh, that was happening. And, uh, you know, uh, not that anything was fair, it was just, you know, you had to step out. You know, uh, it seemed like all the world was crumbling on some level. And so I had to step out, find something else, you know. And that spirit, that adventuresome, has kind of held me in so many ways. And, you know, I, I realized that um, the 2008. Uh, I was able to touch two of the, my great dreams. You know, we have sometimes these dreams, and one of them was in Java and uh, uh, in Indonesia. There's um, a great Buddhist uh, pilgrimage spot that's called Borbador. And I got to go and kind of experience the, you know, the carvings and uh, something that between 750 and 1100 uh, was a great Buddhist country that uh, from China and India, people would take these pilgrimages to go and experience the, uh, what the, um, you know, uh, they talked about it as the replica of Mount Meru in the texts of this kind of the mythical kind of Mount Olympus or whatever, the mountain where uh, kind of all the heavens and hells uh, are somehow available. You know, you get kind of close to that on some level. And it may not be in one thing, it's, you know, a place that people uh, go because it's a tourist place on one level. But another place, it's uh, that, in a sense, we all have this longing to uh, touch something, you know, touch something that pulls uh, something out of us, something that, um, you know, sometimes is uh, not so noticeable. You know, it's like coming here. It's to pull something out of us, not so noticeable. And pilgrimage has been a piece of that in, uh, in Buddhist culture. Uh, I also, in 2008, had the a privilege of um, putting together a, a group to go to Kailash in western Tibet, kind of the most remote part of Tibet. And, my vision was that we had to go the old route, we had to walk in, you know. And I remember in August I was teaching with uh, Gil and Mary Grace and this Tibetan center down in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And uh, when the retreat was over, I stayed to sit. And, and in the mornings I would go and I would, uh, at dawn, I would uh, go walk and get my body together so I could do this pilgrimage. And, but in the meantime, of course, the uh, Chinese had uh, somewhat closed Tibet. And so it was kind of a dream that was crumbling in front of me in this community that actually uh, said, well, we'll go on pilgrimage anyway, you know, uh, to Western Nepal. And the probability of getting in was very, very slim. But uh, as, you know, things happened, uh, this was the only group that got in to Tibet that year, of the, of, into Kailash, this, this particular route. You know. So there were all these kind of gifts. 
and in that process where you have to walk and kind of climb over the Himalayas, uh, which are awesome, and uh, to drop down onto the Tibetan Plateau, uh, was, it was like a dream from you know, sort of Alexander David Neal, who was a great, uh, you know, uh, a great woman who dressed as a man in the, I think it was the 30s, and went into Tibet and uh, Lama Govinda. So there was all this history of, uh, of, of really uh, great um, pilgrims uh, who over the centuries had taken these pilgrimages. So it felt like, oh, I kind of jumped out of my own world and jumped into a bigger world on some level. Now, the next part of the story is um, having accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. Uh, I came back um, actually teaching this retreat last year. Um, at the end of it, Naval, my whole world kind of crumbled. I mean, every aspect, you know. And it was all about this truth that. Um, you know, we have these bodies. Uh, they are uh, rent bodies, you know? And uh, we have to somehow begin to acknowledge. And one of the things I was doing was not acknowledge. I always think, oh, I have a lot of intuition. I kind of do all this stuff and everything. But, you know, I went into, I had to have a biopsy, and I went in for, this was for prostate, and I walked in to uh, this urologist, and I sat down. I had no clue, right? I mean, you would think, you know, I would have some idea of what was going on. You know, I had no idea. You know, and he said, oh, you know, 90%, you know, malignant. And I was like, what? You know, and you kind of sit there and go, wait a minute, this got to be somebody else. You know, this isn't me. No. And there was that kind of moment where kind of disbelief and um, uh, also I think that, and it was interesting because the man who was supposed to come pick me up uh, got the wrong hour, so I sat out in the parking lot, you know, for an hour or so and I had to begin to digest, you know, the fact that, um, you know, there, there was this, this truth, and I had actually, you know, in some ways, I just didn't believe it, you know? And then there was another part saying, okay, now what? You know? And so there was this whole process of kind of recognize, first of all, I didn't, there was no, I thought, well, you know, you should know something like that. But in a way, I also, I look back at it, and everything that was actually uh, from the trip to Kailash, uh, back, all the things were kind of destabilizing, crumbling around me. You know, it happens. You know. Before freedom speaks, you must know. Know you have lost something. Someone, somewhere, somehow when a small shiver, vibration, some tingling that causes your fingertips to stretch out, out beyond time, some place where the budding awareness leaves the foul taste and smell behind. It's just true. You know, that somehow uh, when we um, expect things to be one way, uh, it doesn't always uh, work that way. And so uh, it was interesting because when I went Friday, uh, I, was, I was just going for a blood test and a few things, and I realized how much I, when I drove over there, uh, kind of all the, you know, as you sit here, like all the stuff, we, we get so sensitive here. Uh, to life and the things that we hold. And uh, it all sort of started uh, kind of coming back in some way, you know, that um, 
really is an awareness of the truth uh, of what you are, you know? And physically, uh, this is kind of the lot of uh, uh, who we are. And I had a very hard time uh, with uh, what I went through, you know, in the sense of, uh, you know, it should be, I don't know, they say it's easy, but, you know, then it ended up with complications and stuff. But I'm really, for everything that happened, I'm so grateful, you know. Uh, it also may give me a long, many years. Who knows? My father died of prostate cancer at 72, so, you know, it was there. I just wouldn't look at it, you know, and I didn't believe uh, on some level that, you know, that was my lot. But um, you don't know that. You don't know that. So there's this truth of, uh, you know, the body and its impermanence and uh, the fact that uh, we can't know. And what is it uh, that this is trying to tell us a lot of times? You know, there, to me, there's this simple line, you know, spiritual immediacy, that somehow, uh, uh, however, whatever it is that brings you uh, to the truth of this, uh, you know, impermanent phenomena of uh, body and mind. You know. And in Buddhism, uh, one of the lines I used in here I thought was, uh, uh, I don't know if it's actually a, kind of a, a word. Um, interconditionality. Sounds great, you know? interconditionality, that we have this, you know, this mind, and then we have this body, and, and really, uh, in Buddhist terminology, we talk about it as, first of all, that they're, they can't be separated out. You know, uh, they are interdependent on each other. And the Buddha simply explained it as there are these kind of five heaps, you know, it was one way of calling it. And uh, Mary Grace kind of spoke about it in the, in the sense that when you know that the mind and body, there's this um, interconditionality of things, that they are completely linked. And that in that, uh, we have to begin looking at uh, how we uh, construct, you know, who we are and how this all works in some way. And it has, first of all, to take, and, and we sit here, and, and this is really dependent. Uh, it's dependent on our ability, which is such a great gift, to sit here and collect yourself. You know? And certainly there's all this, um, you know, all these logs that kind of take and throw you off in some way that uh, kind of stir up uh, the water of uh, the emotions in the body and the mind. But fundamentally, uh, what we're doing here is, in a sense, there has to be that awareness of the suffering and that that suffering has this capacity to inform you, you know? And that's the spiritual immediacy. Like, okay, I need to do this. I need to really look carefully at what it is that's holding me, that's this tana, this grasping, and that I can actually in some way, uh, recognize the kind of futility uh, of this habit pattern of this grasping that keeps happening. And that uh, I can then, when I see that, uh, there can be a deep-seated kind of knowing or feeling None of this is separate, you know? If there's living, then there is this process. And that awareness then uh, begins this place of, uh, you know, first you don't know where you're going, you know? Uh, in some ways it can't be known. All that we can do at that point, and they use the word faith in the sense of uh, 
can you uh, sit uh, knowing uh, the suffering that is uh, that that, uh, in a sense, uh, gives you the confirmation of the direction to go. And then once that confirmation is there, uh, then you can't you can't know at that point. Uh, all you can do, and this is what we're doing here, is this collecting that happens. And that collecting, first of all, uh, there is uh, the necessity um, to get really fine, you know, really fine. And uh, what's wonderful about whether you're here for two months or a month, you know, it's the truth of this getting very fine. And that fine has certain, first of all, of course, we fall back into suffering, we have our stories, we go back and forth in this, you know. But it always takes that awareness, that knowing of it, and then uh, there has to be this, you know, this, um, what? You know, if the carpet has been pulled out from under you, and you don't know the way, the path itself, you know. And yet, uh, there is instinctually something inside of you, you know, that you will become more and more familiar with as you go along. You know? uh, and it doesn't need thinking. It doesn't need any um, great thinking or intelligence. It does take the capacity to collect and feel different levels of that collection of the sense of it, it in the sense of lightness. Uh, there's the delight, the joy, uh, the tranquility, uh, the happiness, the concentration uh, that have uh, much to teach us. You know, and that teaching is uh, something that uh, also can help us understand our sense experience, a deep uh, experience of uh, that delight or joy or that tranquility or um, uh, happiness and concentration has the ability to give us a sense, the, the world we see, the senses we experience, are not everything. There is finer and finer experiences. And so there is a bit of loosening up in that process, loosening up our attachment to the sensual uh, grasping that we believe is totally it, that there's actually finer levels to that. and they are supporting eventually our capacity to turn towards this, you know, uh, simplicity of um, uh, understanding and vision the way things are. I mean, it's a big thing, the way things are, you know. So what does that have to do with it? It has to do with, I'll go back to these, you know, fundamentals of when the, there is a mind and body, guess what, you got one, and that uh, there is the capacity to begin to see uh, its nature. And its nature from kind of this Buddhist perspective is very simple, you know? It says, well, you know, you got a body, you know, you got feelings, you have the capacity for perception and memory, you have what you make up about it all, called mental formations, and the knowing of it, the consciousness that happens. And uh, our experience is really, you could say, is what? Uh, there is the object, there is the eye, or one of the sense doors, or the thought, and the knowing of it. So there are really 18 possibilities here. That's all that are happening. That's it. You know? And so our capacity is to begin to take and bring it down to a notch, 
where we begin to uh, recognize, first of all, that it's that simple what's happening. So it's really about uh, the capacity to uh, be very present for single experiences. And it, what's very difficult about single experiences is they're happening so incredibly fast. So our first sort of insights are based on the fact, uh, and I think one of the, the, you know, it sounds so simple when you say everything is impermanent. You know, it's like intellectually you know that, but we're talking about repeating this on a, on a level uh, where it starts to uh, impact uh, the recognition of what's happening. So it's no longer in the sphere of thinking and making it up. It's actually a, a physical experience that you know that that's true. And therefore, it begins to break into the solidity of how your mind works, which your mind is always trying to what? Its, it's, it's nature is to solidify what it sees so it can feel safe. Isn't that kind of what it does? You know, so it's going around. Uh, through its perception, uh, it then there is the, what happens is there is uh, that that identifies and connects with it. And that begins to shimmer or vibrate. Okay? It begins to be questioned on a very fundamental level. You know, is this actually what's going on here? What I actually experience through these sense doors in my mind? Or is something else happening here? No. And the whole process here is then at that point we begin to start questioning. You know, uh, questioning in the sense that um, we have these views and beliefs that we have, you know, from our life experience constructed. Uh, in a sense, to kind of get what we want and keep away what we don't want, and uh, fundamentally to feel safe in all kinds of um, armoring and defense systems, and uh, you know, from early childhood habits uh, that somehow, you know, uh, keep us safe. Okay, that's just what they are, you know, and we come here. And we actually are risking that safety. It's not going to hold up forever. And so we see, yes, we see the, that that uh, occurs when we hold on or old stories that kind of catch us and we kind of run with them for a little while. And what happens? You suffer for that, don't you? You know, you're not even here. You know, it's really simple. What's happening here? Nothing's happening here. You know, nothing is happening here. So uh, as you become more comfortable with nothing is happening here, and you start to get a little more used to the fact that you make all this up and that this is actually this, you know, uh, fleeting experience uh, that is breaking into the solidity of your view and your belief systems. You know, and you have to start questioning, you know. The knowledge and the vision of the way things are, you know. So there is this a capacity to recognize, well, what is it that's kind of holding the, this together? Is it this sense of, okay, there is certainly the, the ignorance which keeps it running. And then there is this concretization that happens, uh, which uh, naturally happens in the sense of uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, that that I know. It arises as myself uh, in the experience. You know? So really, in some ways, what we're doing is we're just playing out this movie over and over again. You know, but what's true is, yes, you're grasping and you're, you know, holding on to this and that. But I also want to inform you that there are moments where that's not happening. Right? 
where you're just here, you know. And, and that's something that maybe just moments, but they begin to affect and influence how you hold yourself and how things are. You know, so there's actually kind of a, a breaking down there. And that breaking down, Sharda so beautifully spoke about, about the fact that we start seeing uh, the fundamental complexity uh, of, on one side, that when we're just sitting here, and there's the awareness itself, or the knowing and consciousness, which is experiencing something pleasant or unpleasant, and there's no movement towards or against it. We're just here. And it loosens that structure. And as that structure begins to loosen, then there is, oh, wait a minute, what am I doing here? You know? What are you doing here? You know? And at that kind of juncture, there is a recognition, really, in essence, of the price of the wheel of dependent origination, of how grasping and wanting and uh, what, where it's going. And so you've seen it clearly. There's been a moment where, and maybe many, many moments where you were just sitting there. And you knew that uh, uh, it was affecting how you were making yourself up. So you relax. There's two ways, you know, the word dispassion, I'm not so excited about, by the way. But I did like the way Sharda held passion. Okay, well, or the lack of it, whatever. So anyway, the truth is, you know, from, this is from just that I understand, uh, is um, instead of getting small, uh, we start to get big. And big actually gives space, a space to the complexity of our grasping. So suddenly we have actually learned something that's counterintuitive. You know, instead of the grasping, which is its natural reaction is what? I'm going to hold myself together, come hell or high water, you know? And here we're learning something about space, about, oh, well, I can actually reverse this. And instead of contracting, you know, I can actually open up. You know? And it's not uh, connecting uh, with the, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or whatever it is or neutral. It's just simply the space that opens up, you know? And uh, so the, this maybe you call, you know, some kind of attachment disorder or something, uh, <laughs> begins to loosen up, you know? Because that's what it is, kind of attachment disorder we have. <laughs> you know, and it begins to loosen up. And then at that point, you know, you begin to acknowledge you know, first of all, what you're looking at and what you're making up. Okay? So, first of all, is it true what you're looking at when it's happening so fast and you're that still? Is this solid and real? I'll just leave it at that. You know, you have to ask those questions of yourself. You know, is this solid and real? The other is this, uh, Gil spoke about this thing of assigning. You know, uh, we think sometimes in language. And in language, 
uh, there is a, uh, you know, it is a, a facsimile or something close to what it might be. It's not it. Okay, so there's some process here where in that opening up, we have to get below the language itself, below uh, how we're constructing uh, our views and our opinions about things and our judgments. And I mean, it's such a complex thing, but we have to get under it, you know, and that getting under it uh, has this ability, you know, uh, this ability to remember that there's just sitting here and there is this knowledge of um, freedom or liberation that's actually available. And so it happens. Freedom's not something that's, you know, for just certain people. It is something that we are over and over again experiencing here, but we're so unused to it uh, that our minds keep concretizing around the identification. And that concretization uh, is extremely questionable. You know? And so we begin to, in a sense, uh, let, looking at what the seeing or the hearing, whatever, we begin to let it all go. And in letting it all go, there is this capacity to, in a sense, kind of sit in the center, you know. Uh, this is from Henry David Thoreau. In the long run, you hit only what you aim at. Therefore, though you should fail immediately, you had better aim at something high. And I think that this whole being here uh, is an expression of your, uh, your longing, you know, for that capacity for space, for opening it up. You know. You know, we think of sometimes freedom as uh, some, something that will do it for us. But there's another way of holding that, and Gil was kind of talking about the same thing. We'll all be talk we're always talking about the same thing on some level. That uh, there is this place uh, underneath when you get really quiet and you turn your attention to how it's manufactured or constructed or conditioned. And one begins to see or own or recognize that uh, those moments uh, which from one point of view are not charged, you know, there's no charge around it. It's just kind of this place that's, that's not doing anything. It's just in the center of all of it. It's no, there's no I or me or mine. There's not a, uh, a need to move towards it, away from it. There's simply this capacity to sit in the center, you know, and that everything in essence is kind of in order from that point of view. Uh, there is a, you know, simple principle of self, it kind of self-organizes when we stop battling with it, stop struggling with it, you know. We have to stay very attentive, but we stop struggling with it. And as you stop struggling with it, then um, you allow kind of uh, this freedom uh, because it's no longer holding anything to be recognized. You know, and so I encourage you in every way to when those still moments are there, we always kind of look for the dramas and the charge and the you know, good or bad, the best sit or whatever, 
It's not about any of that. You know, it's simply about uh, this, these moments of really quietude where there's peace and there's uh, non-struggle. And it happens. You know. But we don't believe it. We believe somehow that when, because of the, the addiction, really, to pleasantness and unpleasantness and the drama behind them, that somehow if we get through that, we'll find it. We'll be kind of freed. This is from the late Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, The Myth of Freedom. The attainment of enlightenment from ego's point of view is extreme death. The death of the self, the death of me and mine, the death of the watcher. It is the ultimate and final disappointment. It is the ultimate and final disappointment. How did you get started with this? <laughs> so there is one other piece I um, feel like it's important to, to kind of express here is when uh, that, uh, in the sense of the knowledge of uh, liberation or the capacity to, they talk about, you know, these cankers or these kind of really ignorance and the, the tenacity of the self um, it's not that we're getting rid of something, like the self is not getting rid of. It's really about there's not so much, you know, it's not such a big deal. You know, there's a loosening of it, you know. And so there's the kind of the relative reality, what's true. And there's also the truth that in that openness, uh, in that spaciousness, in that vividness. Uh, when that is there. You know, uh, uh, there is something that's always there. It's always been there. And it's not diluted. You know, and they use sometimes, uh, I like Chogyam Trumpa used to use the expression of basic goodness. You know, sometimes call, they use the word Buddha nature. I don't know all that stuff. It gets complicated in how it happens. But the simplicity that there is uh, when we sit in the center of things and that we begin to, that from the knowledge of really letting go, there begins to grow a confidence. And the confidence is, first of all, what I'm looking at uh, is, and what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, what I'm smelling, uh, what I'm tasting, what I'm thinking. You know, it's due to these conditions. You know, so they're external objects. There's the sense door where it happens, and there's a knowing of it. And so maybe what I'm talking about here is the confidence that begins to uh, see that, you know, in a sense, the world is kind of this, underneath the language, is this empty phenomena that nature is to arise and pass away just like uh, the body, uh, just like the feelings, the perceptions, the mental formations, uh, the consciousness itself, you know, it's all rising and disappearing, you know. And so we get this confidence that allows us to not get lost uh, in the objects, the and sense the, the organs that experience them, and that that's knowing it, that somehow all of that uh, 
is held lightly. One of the things uh, when I was on Kailash, I had the privilege of uh, sitting in, in Milarepa's cave, you know, and I actually got to teach on uh, vividness, spaciousness, and ease. Just great, you know. It was, uh... But one of his um, uh, heart followers, um, centuries, actually, I don't know, maybe centuries or so later, was a great yogi uh, by the name of Shabkar. And um, one of the, um, I've had such great privileges, but one of them I, just that came through my mind was uh, Delgo Kensei Rinpoche when I was probably 23 and I was in the first time I was in Budgaya where the Buddha was enlightened and I was uh, circumambulating the big stupa there, which is kind of this representation of Kailash or Meru. And um, I came around the corner and there was this six foot six, you know, huge man. And he had all these little in Tibetan robes with shaved heads. Uh, he was enormous. He was from Kham, the kind of Eastern Tibet where uh, they're, they're like the, his holiness's uh, Dalai Lama, his uh, bodyguards are all from Kham. They're big people, really big people. And uh, Dilko Kensei is huge, man, you know. And he had this little boy you know, like a four-year-old with, with a shaved head and, and, and uh, on his shoulders, and these, these, these other, like the eight little tulkus, these little kind of reincarnate around him as he came around the corner, and I was so stunned by the, uh, you know, just, I don't know, it was just the sight of it. And then over the years, you know, his, uh, his, his, his how he was influenced by Shabkar, uh, and uh, how... Uh, his capacity to keep that openness, you know, and uh, see that there was not a separateness, but there was actually kind of a unifying uh, sense of confidence uh, in just not moving, you know, of just staying. So I have a kind of couple lines here from Shopkar, and then I'll... The source of phenomena of samsara and nirvana is the true nature of one's own mind, an immense expanse that is an empty brilliance, completely free of taking things as real. This I have realized. If I look towards the one who realizes this, one's own awareness is like the sky, set free beyond clinging in the unborn expanse of the ultimate nature of mind. Beautiful. No, such. And then uh, this other piece, and then I'll wind around here, if that's possible. Uh, when I stay, I have nothing to be attached to. When I leave, I have nothing to leave behind. Wherever I am, no one says, where have you been? Where are you going? I, the renunciate yogi, am happy and sing a song of joy. I have raised my head and seen the cloudless sky. It made me think of absolute boundless space. I have felt a freedom without middle or end, free of any partial views. I have seen the world and living beings as possessing the same nature, the Buddha, nature, which has awoken in me, which is naturally present in all beings. I have known the state of freedom. From attraction and repulsion, from the hope of reaping the fruit and the fear of failure, I have let go. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. So, now it's your turn. <laughs> So I think with that, I, I have so much I could say, but I think you get the point. If not, we'll repeat it. <laughs> Spring equinox, equinox, a lesson. Before freedom speaks, you must know. 
know you lost something, someone, somewhere, somehow. When a small shiver, vibration, some tingling that causes your fingertips to stretch out, out beyond time, some place where that budding awareness leaves the foul taste and smell behind. So a lucid calmness, like stepping through the clouds, being held in all directions, your own strong arms, embracing that seer, that seeker, the one who promised freedom, your own body covered in rags, a patchwork of so many dreams, caught in the destiny of becoming. Today you looked under the covers, far beneath the alluring senses, somewhere where a warm heart and fierce eyes, feet free to walk among the high mountains again, unmoved by the chill of last year's dying, needing only a moment a full attention. The whole world disappears. All the grasping to belong, gone. All the constructions, useless. This body-mind interconditionality, known. Wisdom well-earned sees the natural state of things. And oops, the heart breaks open. The heart breaks open. So to be continued. Just sit for a moment. Don't be anybody. You do that. Oops, the heart breaks open. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.